Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, the threat to Yemen's president... There's a consensus now that his position is untenable, not least because he's running out of money. The cost of containing the unrest is going up. The economy is more or less ground to a halt. Refugees in the Libyan crisis. We've seen boatloads crossing the Mediterranean towards the small Italian islands closest to the Tunisian coast. And about 22,000 have arrived so far, creating a huge crisis on the little Italian islands. And shutting down the government in Washington. They're stuck dueling over whether or not they cut $35 billion from the budget or $40 billion. And there's this delicate dance which is going right up to the wire. And in the end, a deal may not be reached and the US government may be shut down from Saturday. We start with Yemen. Political instability continues to be rife across the Middle East. And most people's bet to be the next leader to fall is Yemen's long-standing president, Ali Abdullah Saleh. Our correspondent in the capital is Abigail Fielding-Smith. Abigail, what we read, uh, not least in the Financial Times, is that there have been attempts to persuade President Saleh to leave, sponsored by the Americans, by the Gulf states. I mean, is it safe to assume now that he's on his way out or not? Yes. I mean, there's a consensus now that his position is untenable, not least because he's running out of money. The cost of containing the unrest is going up. The economy is more or less ground to a halt. And you know, some people think there's only a few more weeks before... He runs out of money, apart from anything else. So um, I don't really see how he could continue. What's going to replace him then? Well, that's the subject of the negotiations going on behind the scenes at the moment. The most probable outcome is some kind of transitional authority headed by the vice president and then constitutional reforms and then elections. That's the optimistic outcome, but I mean, that's also what's most likely to be agreed in negotiations. As you say, that's the optimistic outcome. Some of outsiders, I mean, notably the American Defence Secretary, Robert Gates, have been pretty obviously very anxious about what will happen in Yemen and worry about the country's stability and its economic viability. How justified do you think those are as somebody who's been there for some time now? Well, I think worries about the country's stability and, and its economic stability are very justified, but it's not clear that keeping Salah in power will improve the outlook on those things. And actually, the U.S. administration's rode back quite a lot from Gates's comment and, and now making signals that it's more a threat, really, for, from the point of view of al-Qaeda, to have him in power. And it's true that you've had a concentration of power in the hands of one man, and, and whatever comes next is likely to be more multipolar, which is less predictable. But I think the kind of stability that Salah provided is now seen as, as quite a false kind of stability. On the economy, how bad are things? We hear that the country's running out of oil, it's running out of water, and presumably months of unrest must have been highly disruptive. Yeah, things are very, very bad on the economic front. The real has been depreciating, and that's particularly bad for Yemen because they import almost everything. And from what I can gather, apart from certain key products that are still being sponsored by the central bank, other imports have just stopped. 
I think if we get a settlement, it's likely that there will be an inflow of donor aid and possibly Gulf aid once there's a new settlement in place to kind of support it, and that will buy some breathing space. But yeah, I mean, the first priority for whoever comes next is going to have to be to address these really critical economic factors. You mentioned terrorism, obviously a very difficult thing to monitor by its nature, but there is this sense that Yemen is really now a key base for al-Qaeda, almost on a par with Pakistan. How easy is it to get a sense of the presence of al-Qaeda in Yemen? That's a good question. It's hard to measure. They have quite prolific publication output, but a lot of the incidents that are reported as being al-Qaeda are subject to manipulation and questioning, and some people say it's the regime sort of claiming it's al-Qaeda it's hard to get an accurate picture. I mean, certainly the US, based on its intelligence, sees it as a major threat. And the indications are that that they would continue the counter-terrorism relationship after Saleh, and I'm sure that's what the US wants to do as well. But it has been based on very personal relationships that the US has built up with the people in charge of counter-terrorism here. So it'd be interesting to see how all that's going to be affected by a change of regime. Finally, I mean, I guess there's been an assumption lying behind some of the questions I've asked you that there will be this negotiated transition away from President Saleh. But is it still possible that events will get out of hand? I mean, I gather there are demonstrations today on Friday as we speak and that we won't get an orderly transition. It'll be much more chaotic than that. Yes, I mean, that's a real risk and that's something people are very afraid of. People are still being evacuated from humanitarian international organisations and... I think there's not so much the fear of a deliberate confrontation between two sides of the divided army, but that that some kind of spark with so many people on the streets and so many people armed will then escalate into something larger. So far, Friday seems to be going quietly, and I think the shadow of these Gulf talks is exerting restraints on on all actors because no one wants to be seen as an aggressor when they go to the negotiating table. But we're certainly not out of danger yet on, on that at all. Abigail, thank you very much indeed. Thousands of refugees have fled Libya since the onset of fighting, many heading for Italy. Some 250 are now missing from a sunken refugee boat off the Italian coast. Guy Dinmore, our Rome correspondent, spoke to Fiona Simons and she asked him, what do we know about the refugee boat? Well, it definitely came from Libya. And according to accounts from survivors, it first set off from Tripoli. It headed west to the port of Zuara, which is also under the control of the Gaddafi regime picked up more people and and then set out to sea. All the immigrants on board were from Africa. What was the migrant situation before the uprisings in Libya and Tunisia? It was very much under control thanks to bilateral agreements between Italy with the regimes of Tunisia and Libya, whereby Italy helped them patrol their waters. Gaddafi, as he put it, turned off the taps on, on the flow of migrants crossing through Libya heading towards Europe. And those that were caught on the high seas by the Italians were forcibly repatriated back to Libya and Tunisia, which suited very much the Italians and also the Libyans and the Tunisians who were getting economic aid in return. But in fact, the UN Refugee Agency was protesting, saying that this was a breach of international conventions on the way refugees should be treated. But once those regimes collapsed, in Gaddafi's case, haven't finally collapsed, but the security forces are obviously tied up with other things, or in Tunisia have sort of disintegrated, this stop on migrants came to an end. So mainly from Tunisia, in fact, since January, we've seen boatloads crossing the Mediterranean towards the small Italian island closest to the Tunisian coast. 
And about 22,000 have arrived so far, creating a huge crisis on the little Italian islands, which was resolved when the Italians took them off these islands and put them into tent camps on the mainland and on Sicily, where they should be processed. Have the arrangements broken down altogether between Libya, Tunisia and Italy? Pretty well, yes. This week, Berlusconi, the Prime Minister, actually went to Tunisia to try and revive these agreements with the new Tunisian government. He failed on Monday. His interior minister went back on Tuesday and struck a deal whereby Italy will give something like 200 to 300 million euros in economic aid to the Tunisians, help them rebuild their security forces on the coast. And in turn, it appears that the Tunisians will start taking back new arrivals in Italy. But that leaves the 22,000 or so who are already in Italy. And this is creating an enormous row between Rome, Paris and Brussels. Because the Italian solution now is to give most of these Tunisians temporary residence permits or documents that effectively give them right of residence for six months. And with these, the Italians say they can travel. And most of these refugees, of course, want to go to France, at least the Tunisians do, because they have relatives and friends there. And many are now making their way across Italy to France, where the French say, no, they can't come, and they're trying to send them back. How are the Italian authorities coping? Well, at first, the Italians were in complete disarray, partly because Berlusconi's coalition is dominated by a hard right called the Northern League, whose sole demand was these, that these refugees get out. So the first goal was to try and send all 22,000 back to Tunisia. Tunisia has refused. So the plan B, as it were, was to give them these temporary permits that would allow them to move freely within Italy, knowing full well that most of them will try and leave Italy anyway. Do you think eventually France will have to let them in? In a way, it's kind of difficult for France, with open borders and Schengen, to stop them. But they have been setting up border checkpoints for trains coming in and on the roads. And the French are threatening that if these Tunisians don't have proper documentation, not just this temporary permit, that they will send them back. So this will be the subject of talks tomorrow in Rome between the interior ministers of France and Italy, and Sarkozy himself is coming to Rome later this month to talk about the issue with Berlusconi. But this is just one of many rows over the war in Libya and policy towards northern Africa that have seriously strained relations between Rome and Paris. That was Guy Dinmore in Rome. Finally to Washington... We're recording on Friday morning, and by this evening, if no deal is reached on a new budget, the American federal government will begin to shut down. I'm joined now by the FT's James Crabtree, who's an expert in American affairs. James, how did things get this bad? What you have going on in Washington at the moment is two men, President Obama and the Republican leader of the House, John Boehner, who desperately want to make a deal on this budget, but are being constrained by their respective left and right flanks. President Obama would like to make a deal, but can't do so while cutting too many social spending programs. John Boehner would like to make a deal, but can't do so without bringing the Tea Party and the new members of his caucus who follow that movement with him. And so they're stuck dueling over whether or not they cut thirty-five billion dollars from the budget or 40 billion and there's this delicate dance which is going right up to the wire and in the end a deal may not be reached and the US government may be shut down from Saturday. Presumably both sides are making political calculations. Now last time this happened in the mid-1990s it was a huge boon to President Clinton who was able to paint the Republicans as deeply unreasonable. Do you think at some level, President Obama, or at least his political advisers, are thinking, well, as the Americans would say, bring it on, you know, let the Republicans close the government down because it'll it'll help us. I think that's the calculation. I mean, most of the polls show that if the government is 
closed down, then most people will think that this is the Republicans who've been at fault. However, it's a terribly risky gamble to take. Public opinion is volatile, and it could turn out the other way. And therefore, Democrats have been very nervous this week that this has been a conversation that's mostly been carried out between Republicans, with President Obama seemingly staying back from the fray and not using the presidential bully pulpit, as they call it, to shape the way that the discussion is going. So there's a lot of nervousness on both sides about who will be blamed if this actually transpires. And now this is happening against the background of quite radical and interesting proposals by an emerging Republican star, Congressman Paul Ryan, to deal with the budget over the long term and to cut the very popular health program for, for the elderly. Do you think that that, A, is something that, that's going to shape the future of American politics, that everybody agrees that entitlement reform has to happen and that Ryan's proposal has, has wings, or do you think it's going to be just too politically damaging? It's been an interesting rock thrown in the pool this week. So you have two things going on. You have a very short-term issue about next year's budget, which is a question about tens of billions of dollars. And the, the argument is how much is going to be cut, 30, 40 billion. And then a long-term issue, as you say, which is about what to do over the next decade, where you're talking about trillions of dollars. The deal that is most likely to happen in the long-term question is based around a a commission that was put together earlier in the year called the Bull simpsons Commission. Now, what Paul Ryan has done is come up with a plan which is very different from that and in ways much more radical. In one sense, he's clarified the debate, but in another, he's rather confused it because his proposal will now make it more difficult for moderate Republicans in particular to support a deal around the, the framework put out by this commission. So I suspect what will happen is that the Ryan proposals will turn out to be too radical to be passed, but it will make a wider deal more difficult. So finally, I mean, if one looks at both the Ryan proposals and the argument over that and this immediate argument over the budget deficit, perhaps they tell us one single thing about American politics is that it's incredibly polarised and it's getting harder and harder for centrists to strike deals. That's certainly true. That's been going on for two decades or more. I mean, in one sense, Paul Ryan's proposals are rather admirable. I mean, he is a principled conservative. He's he's a clever guy. And he's taken a risk. He's come out and said, this is what we believe. We're not going to claim that there are false choices here. We are going to claim that the way we need to do this is by cutting or reshaping big entitlement pro- programs and that we can do this by lowering taxes at the same time. And in so doing, he's created a big risk. And he has further polarized by doing this, the debate. James Crabtree, thank you very much. And that's it for this week's programme. Thanks to Abigail Fielding-Smith in Yemen, to Guy Dinmore in Rome, and to James Crabtree in the studio in London. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.